This morning, we return to our verse-by-verse study of Mark's Gospel. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 20 through 35 this morning. Under the heading, Jesus is Lord. This is a, a very insightful, instructive, historical narrative that has contemporary implications and applications for us today, as you will see. Follow along as I read the text. Mark 3, beginning in verse 20. And he, referring to Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here we have another clash between the apostate religious leaders of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God, and rightfully so, for that he was and is, who claimed to be the Messianic Son of David, consistent with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Although the miraculous signs he performed were undeniable, and although his teaching was absolutely consistent with Scripture, true in every way. He was a threat to the ruling class of Israel, to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were furious with him because he openly denounced their religious system of works righteousness. He openly criticized and exposed their contrived traditions and made up laws, their hypocrisy, 
a wickedness, by the way, that most of the, of the, the Jewish people were aware of. And because of his popularity, multitudes were following after him and not them. Therein is the rub. How dare this man claim to be Israel's long-awaited deliverer? If that were true, he would come to us, the elite religious leaders of Israel. Instead, he denounces us and he comes to you, uneducated people. We are the religious elites. We are the keepers of the gate. To make it a little more contemporary, we are the woke of Israel. We are the God-ordained cancel culture that has all of the answers. We know more than the lower class, than the uneducated, than the riffraff, and we must control them. Yet this Jesus goes to you? Now, what do arrogant and corrupt politicians do when their authority is challenged? Well, they make up lies about their opponents, right? They do everything they can to destroy them. They make up false narratives and manufactured outrage. Sound familiar? I mean, we have politicians that have turned this into an art form. We see this all of the time. Don't believe your lying eyes. I know that's what you think is going on, but what's really going on is something else. And that's what was happening in the first century with Jesus and the Pharisees. By the way, we have an interesting term for that these days. It's called gaslighting. Maybe you're familiar with that. Gaslighting. The Merriam-Webster definition is gaslighting is a psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality, or memories, and typically leads to confusion, loss of confidence and self-esteem, uncertainty of one's emotional or mental stability, and a dependency on the perpetrator. Well, this was what was happening, as we see today. They had to use their own version of censorship. And that's exactly what we see today, of course. That type of thing happens all the time in our country, in our political arena. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were very effective at this kind of gaslighting. Remember, Satan is the master deceiver. And he is absolutely brilliant at coming up with ways to thwart the redemptive purposes of God to bring glory to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to confuse people, to make them think that what they see really isn't true. He is a genius in knowing how to command his forces to silence dissenting voices to prevent people from acknowledging Jesus as Lord. You will recall in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul speaks to this. He, he talks about how our gospel is veiled, and here's why. To those who are perishing, 
in whose case the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what we will see here in Mark's historical narrative is a well-funded political hit squad dispatched to discredit Jesus so that they can retain their power and their authority. A group of scribes who were the Jewish lawyers, part of the Pharisees, they're sent from Jerusalem, their headquarters, to Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters. That's about 100 miles. And the logistics of this are really quite remarkable. I know this from having spent so much time on horseback in the mountains and chasing cows on big ranches and these types of things, so I have some sense of this type of thing. To go 100 miles, you would, you would have to have quite a few servants. You would have to have wranglers to help pack the mules and the horses and to take care of them. You would have to have cooks. You would have to have people to help, help set up tents and so forth. And I know, as many of you do, who were with me in Israel, that this particular terrain was very, very rugged, very mountainous. In fact, Jerusalem is at 2,550 feet above sea level. Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. So we've got about 3,250, I guess, feet that they would have to descend. And by the way, have to go back up later on. So this is quite an ordeal. This would require some serious preparation and backing. We don't know how many scribes and Pharisees came together. We, we, this text doesn't tell us. I would imagine it'd be anywhere from six to uh, a dozen or so. And so we know, and I know from experience that Usually, uh, an experienced horseman can travel about 26 miles on fairly flat terrain with a horse. You can, with a good horse, and if you're in good shape, you might be able to get it up to 30. But in this type of terrain, with guys that probably very seldom straddle the donkey, 20 miles, maybe max. So you start doing the math, think how long it's going to take to get to Capernaum. It's quite an ordeal. And I would imagine those scribes were bow-legged by the time they got there. They were probably looking for Vaseline, some gauze, and a whole lot of Advil. But Jesus had to be stopped. By the way, I, I have to think how God has a good sense of humor. I, I was thinking about this. Some of you older people, like me, might remember that song, Home, Home on the Range, you know? And it has this piece in the lyrics where seldom is heard a discouraging word. Folks, let me tell you, I know what it's like to be on top of a horse all day long chasing cattle and then roping them at the end of the day. And by the time you get around the fire, all you hear are discouraging words. <laughs> and so the point is, these scribes, these Pharisees, I'm sure... We're glad to get off of their mounts and finally make it. Now, as we approach the text, what we're going to see is basically three explanations for who Jesus is. 
Who is this man? Three positions are put forth. One, that he's deranged. Two, that he's demonic. And number three, that, is, that he is deity. All right? Now, remember, Jesus, here's the context. Jesus has been up on the mountain, and he has prayed and summoned his 12 apostles. And then in Mark 3.20, we read, and he came home. The original language indicates that he came to a house, and this was in Capernaum. And this would have been his headquarters, probably Peter's house, that we're quite certain we can see the remains of that today. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Now you stop and think about that. You've got hordes of people, and why not? If you knew that perhaps the Messiah that can heal diseases is there, what are you going to do? Well, we're all going to grab our families, and we want to go see him, if nothing else, but especially if we're sick. And so people were coming from everywhere. In fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 32, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Later on in verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So naturally, the people are thinking, indeed, this is, this is the Messiah. His miracles prove this. We're having a, a taste here of, 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 of the kingdom that would someday come. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's now. People thought it was now. They thought that Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled completely. After all, Isaiah tells them and tells us in Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6, that when the Messiah comes, there will be removal of death during the kingdom. This is happening. Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 7, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Well, this is what we see happening. You will recall in Matthew 11, John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus, according to verse 3, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? I mean, we're, we're a bit confused here. And you will recall Jesus answered them by referring back to the passage that I just read in Isaiah 35. Jesus answered them and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And folks, beyond all of this, there were, there were exorcisms, healings as well as exorcisms. Moreover, Jesus had command over nature many of these people saw that. 
Let me remind you, back in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 through verse 28, you read how the first Adam was supposed to rule over the created realm of the earth, yet he failed, right? And as a result of his sin and God's curse, sickness and death entered the world, but nature would also work against him. Genesis 3, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. But what's fascinating is we know that the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, is king over nature. He is the one that would fulfill that kingdom mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's fulfilled in and through him. He succeeded where Adam failed. And with a word, we know, for example, that, that he calmed the seas. He calmed the storm. He turned water into wine. He, 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 he multiplied, multiplied bread and, and fish. He walked on water. So naturally, people are thinking, okay, this is the Messiah. The kingdom is coming now. now an important footnote. The kingdom wasn't completely fulfilled at that time. It awaits a future fulfillment. Jesus' miracles were only a foretaste, only a preview of the coming kingdom. In fact, later in his ministry, uh, Jesus placed uh, the, the permanent fulfillment of the kingdom um, in the future in various passages. You see, his miracles on earth were at his first coming, at his first coming were not permanent, were they? The people that were healed eventually died. The kingdom is future. You read about this, for example, in the parable of the ten minas in, in Luke 19, and the parable of the fig tree in Luke 21, and, and so forth. In fact, in Matthew 19, 28, remember, he promised Peter and the apostles a reward. He said, and Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you, have, you who have followed me in the regeneration, pelingenesia, a, a term that speaks of a, a taste of cosmic renewal. In the cosmic renewal, in the regeneration, in the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit, up, sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. I might also add that the complete fulfillment of the mandate to rule the earth is also yet future. Hebrews 2.8, we read, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, referring to man. Mankind is still incapable of fulfilling the divinely ordained responsibility of administering the earth properly. We still experience satanic deception. We still experience... Uh, disease and death, all manner of chaos in, in nature. The present creation is still subject to futility, right? Romans 8.20. It longs to be set free from its slavery to corruption, verse 21. So again, when will all this occur? Well, it will occur when Jesus returns finally as the King of Kings. And when he does that, we will be with him. Romans 8, 19, we read, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, back to the text. The crowds are overwhelming. News of Jesus has spread like wildfire. In verse 21, we read this, when his own people, referring to his immediate family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now folks, think about it. How do you defend a loved one causing all of this commotion, claiming to be the Messiah of Israel? Well, you say, ah, I think he's lost his marbles. Now, Mary knew better. Mary knew who he was, but his brothers and sisters didn't until after the resurrection. Now, let me put this in perspective here. Jesus' family lived in Nazareth, which is about 30 miles southwest of Capernaum. So they know what's going on, and they fear for Jesus. They want to come rescue him. And... We know that his brothers were, according to Mark 6.3, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And we know from that text that he had more than one half-sister. Matthew 13.35 through 36 indicates also that he had sisters. So Jesus was one of at least seven children. So much for the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. Well, they're saying, ah, he's deranged. But our saddle-sore scribes, who are never speaking an encouraging word, have their own explanation, and that is that he's demonic. Now, to give you a more complete context for what happened next, we can go to Matthew 12, verses 22 and following. It's a parallel passage to our text here in Mark 3. Here's what we read. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, now catch this, this is crucial. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? You see, they're linking Jesus, and rightfully so, with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Because in that passage, in verses 12 through 16, we read how, how after David's death, God would give him a son who would rule a kingdom that would be established forever, referring to the Messiah. Now, once again, given Jesus' constant repudiation of the scribes and the Pharisees, for people to think that he was the promised Messiah was beyond anything that they could imagine. It was so insulting to them. So we read back to Mark's text. But when the Pharisees, I, I'm sorry, this is still in Matthew, Matthew 12, verse 23. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They had to come up with some explanation. They couldn't deny the miracles. So you have to explain it in a different way. 
Baal-zebul, Baal the prince. It, that was the primary cult of the Philistine deity in, in the city of Ekron. And it's, it's interesting, you could go to 2 Kings uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, and it appears there that the Israelites had a sarcastic parody of Baal-zebub, and they called him, instead of Baal-zebul, Baal-zebub, which means Lord of the Flies. We do that type of thing all the time with people's names, especially in politics, and I don't need to give you examples. Now back to Mark's narrative. The scribes, verse 22 of Mark 3, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now you can imagine the response of the people. What? This guy is working for Satan? Really? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I know it doesn't look that way, but that's what it is. Trust us. We, we've got the answers. You either agree with us or you're a threat to theocracy, right? This was at the heart of their smear campaign. And like all smear campaigns, no dissenting voices are allowed. It's cancel culture, like we see with the liberal progressives of our day that cannot survive apart from censorship, which is always consistent with a totalitarian government. So the scribes and the Pharisees now are these, frankly, the ruling oligarchs, even though they're under Rome, they're the ruling oligarchs of Judaism, and their opinion was all that mattered. Of course, to say that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan is reductio ad absurdum, which is a Latin term in logic, and you'll see how this works out, it's the fallacy of a proposition is proven to be absurd because of where it leads, that is, with respect to its logical conclusion. And Jesus seizes upon this response. Verse 23, and he called them to himself. Can't you see that? Hey, you guys, you guys over there with the, with the bad attitude and the black robes, come here, I want to talk to you guys. And you can imagine all of the people, right? He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Well, there's two lines of rebuttal that's going on here. First of all, as we have just read in that last verse, this demonstrates that their accusation meant that Jesus was stronger than Satan because he could bind the strong man's house, right? A reference to Satan. And if he's stronger than Satan, then he indeed must be sent from God. But secondly, he's saying, okay, help me understand this. Why would Satan rise up against himself by deploying me, who would be stronger than him, to oppose him 
and destroy his agents and thwart his purposes. I mean, that's absurd. Nobody can buy that. Now, what's interesting, I'm sure you will understand this, logic, biblical exposition, even common sense have no place in these kinds of arguments. All that matters is emotion. We see this all, of the, t- all the times with all the time with our politicians and their sycophants in the news media and Hollywood and so forth. I, I always think of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And then he says, afterwards, they go to the dead. Folks, in truth, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, right? 1 John 3.8, that's why he came. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, for he rescued us from the domain of what? The domain of darkness. When we came to faith in Christ, he snatched us from that place and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul said in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And every single person within the sound of my voice who has been born again, who has been made a new creature in Christ, understands this. We, we, we no longer love the things of this world. Th- those things just lose their power. They lose their attraction. There's been a radical change in our nature, a spirit-wrought change that happens when we come to true saving faith in Christ. It changes our disposition. It changes our desires. The things of the world are just, ah, the lust of the, fel- the, lust of the flesh, right? The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all of those things. Now, notice Jesus' scathing condemnation of these arrogant, lying hypocrites. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Beloved, here's what he's saying. Those who, in the face of overwhelming, irrefutable evidence, attribute the spirit-empowered works of Jesus to Satan, cannot be saved. Those who deny him to be the Son of God are guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit who came to put his glory on display. You see, that betrays such a, such a granite, hard-hearted, willful unbelief 
that a person is severed completely from God's saving grace. You see, such an allegation betrays a complete distortion of the truth of what you can clearly see with your eyes. It manifests a total and complete repudiation of the rule of God. That Jesus is somehow motivated by a desire to please Satan rather than to do the will of his Father? Really? That's what you believe? That he is motivated by evil rather than by goodness and grace? That he is empowered by Satan rather than God? Now, as incredulous as that may seem, many people bought it, hook, line, and sinker. We know that some 40 years later, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape, referring to judgment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Despite all of that evidence, you're going to reject him? It's so sad. We were in Israel the past couple of weeks and we see a lot of Orthodox Jewish people deny Jesus. They hate him. They even hate us. Especially the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasadim. They're the ones with the big furry hats. They come out of Poland and Russia. I want to expand upon this idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We, we see this mentioned in an indirect way as well in Hebrews chapter 6, if you want to turn there for a moment, verses 4 through 6, and here we have five opportunities to embrace Christ that the people were neglecting. By the way, I, I want to add something here, an important note. None of the terms that are used in this text refer to salvation. The, the terms that are normally used for salvation are things like election, predestination, chosen of God, saints by calling, new birth, regeneration, justification, sanctification, those types of things. You don't see any of this. So for those people who want to use the passage that we're going to look at briefly, for those who want to use that as a proof text for Christians losing their salvation, I would submit to you that that is not at all the context of this passage. This section is not even being addressed to believers, as many will argue, but to unbelieving Jews who are in danger of falling away, rejecting the gospel invitation, not rejecting or losing their salvation. I also want to add that this, this idea of losing your salvation is a position that is utterly foreign to Scripture. It is the antithesis of the doctrines of God's grace in salvation. Nowhere in Scripture is there an example or a warning about a genuine believer who did something to lose his or her salvation. To say that someone could lose their salvation would say that somehow we, with our own will, can overpower the Spirit's work of regeneration that caused us to be born again, but now we're going to be unborn again. 
there's nothing like that in Scripture. That we were made a new creation in Christ, but now we've been, what, uncreated? That, that we've received eternal life, but now that has been rescinded because of what you have done. It would assume that we could thwart the purposes and the power of God the Father, rendering his decrees in election and predestination null and void. That our salvation is subject to the will of man rather than the will of God. These things are heretical, dear friends. They are not biblical. It would mean that somehow we could have our name that was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world erased. You see, losing your salvation implies that Christ's work as the mediator for believers and his intercession as the believer's high priest is somehow deficient and ineffective. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That is not the doctrine of salvation. So, back to this text. The writer is speaking here to unbelievers, some that no doubt are in the context of what we're just reading about here in Mark's gospel. They were neglecting five opportunities that, to lead them to salvation. Let me read the passage, verse 4, Hebrews 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I mean, notice what the Spirit of God says here through his inspired writer. They had been enlightened. Fotidzo in the original language. It means to give light. And on several occasions in the Septuagint, the term is translated to give light by knowledge or teaching. And so what he's speaking of here is, is that the, the, the people had some mental illumination. They began to understand things they hadn't understood before. It's not speaking of salvation. It speaks of being instructed, of being informed. It, it has nothing to do with belief or disbelief. As Matthew records, they had been enlightened as the prophet Isaiah promised, Matthew 4.16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And many had seen Christ with their own eyes. They had heard him teach. They had heard him preach the gospel of repentance and faith in him. I mean, it was common knowledge to people. No one had ever heard anything like this. The clarity, the authority, the power, Moreover, they, they, they witnessed him give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, food for the hungry, the healing of diseases, giving life to the dead. So enlightened, yes, they were enlightened, but very few of them believed to be saved. In fact, in John 12, 37, we read, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Well, not only had they been enlightened, the text says, but they had tasted of the heavenly gift. This is the gift of Christ and the salvation that he offers. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So indeed, they, they, they tasted it. They enjoyed some measure of this gift through common grace. You might say the, 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 the tongues and, and the lips of their souls got a little flavor of new life, of, of potential kingdom blessings. They tasted it, 
They, they sampled it, but they never drank him in. They never ingested him fully. They never embraced him wholeheartedly. But thirdly, they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers, metakos, in the original language, denotes sharing in common association, not possession. Very important. It's translated partners in Luke 5, 7, and they signal to their partners in the other boat. In other words, those who shared something with them in common association. Now, to be sure, many people, these unbelieving Jews, had shared in a common association of, with the Holy Spirit. They were constantly exposed to, to his, the works that he empowered through, through, through the words that, that they heard through the Lord Jesus. And some of them may have even been healed by his power. Some of them may have been part of the crowd that ate of the, of the fish and the loaves, right? But they did not possess him. Something very, very different. And then it says, and they have tasted the good word of God. In other words, they sampled a little flavor of what God has revealed to them concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. It says the good word of God. The term word there is rhema, an unusual term that refers to God's revelation. Normally, the term would be logos, but rhema emphasizes just parts or portions, not the whole which is consistent with the whole context of the passage. They were aware of the Old Testament, and now they're aware a little bit of some of the words of Jesus, some of the words of the apostles that would be written fully in the New Testament. They've tasted the good word of God. Didn't mean they were saved. Just like some of you, they met together with people in the churches, some of them did listen to portions of the word, but certainly they didn't have a comprehensive understanding of the gospel. But even the limited amount that they had tasted was enough to point them to Christ, but they hadn't ingested the truth of the gospel. Folks, no one is saved because they taste the good word of God, right? A man is saved when they devour it in full. As Jeremiah, who said in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And finally, not only had they, had they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, referring to the miraculous powers of the future messianic kingdom on earth that will be revealed when Jesus returns. They had witnessed the miraculous works of Christ of the apostles, including the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, there was virtually no disease in the whole realm. The great miracles of, recorded in the Gospels and in the book of Acts were all powers that will ultimately be seen in the millennial kingdom. They just had a little sample of it. They were intended to authenticate Christ's off, legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel, a genuine offer condition on the repentance of the nation, but they refused. 
So in summary, they had been given all these opportunities to come to full faith in Christ. God had enlightened their minds with the truth, allowed them to be in association with or in the company or in the company with the Holy Spirit and other believers, allowed them to have a taste of heavenly gifts, his word, his power that will one day dominate the earth and the promised kingdom. Yet they were still undecided. They were still not committed. The, the pressure and persecution to hold heartedly em, em, embrace, I mean, if you wholeheartedly embrace Christ was just too much for them. And some people even attributed his works to Satan. And this sets up a solemn warning to those who reject Christ. In verse four, for in the case of those who have experienced all these advantages, verse six, and then have fallen away, not fallen away from salvation, but from the opportunity to be saved. For those who have fallen away, despite the full light of divine revelation and the offer of salvation, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In other words, if with full knowledge and opportunities you choose to fall away from Christianity, to back away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to fall back into Judaism, to try to earn your salvation through your own good works, there is no hope for you. It is impossible to renew you again to repentance. Not only in the, in the sense that there is no greater evidence that can be offered, but because, and I want you to hear this, the greater the rejection, the greater the judgment. And I fear for some of you who hear the gospel message over and over and over again, and you never embrace Christ in saving faith. How long will you neglect so great a salvation? Persistent indecisiveness will gradually produce a hard heart. This is what he warned about in chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, the writer says, that there not be any of one of you, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. My friends, please understand the danger here. The deceitfulness of sin will fuel your unbelief. And your unbelief, especially in light of the full knowledge of the truth, will turn your heart to stone as part of God's judgment upon you. We see this all the time with people, don't we? They know what the gospel is, but they have granite indifference towards the truth of God's saving grace. Nothing can penetrate the fortress of their heart. Preaching has no effect. They become immune to the truth, and they fall back constantly into whatever philosophy or religious tradition that they feel comfortable with. And when this happens, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, that is to restore them once again to the original level of conviction and excitement about the saving truths of the gospel. And if you fall away from the truth in light of all the opportunities that God gives you, again, it is impossible to renew you again to repentance since you again crucify to yourself the Son of God and put him to open shame. 
In other words, like those Pharisees and those scribes, you take your stand with the same ones who said, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. He is not our Lord. He is an imposter. He is a fraud. He's a charlatan. He's a blasphemer. Put him to open shame. He's guilty as charged. Like Judas. Think of the people that you know. Maybe this is you. Who rejected Jesus with a full understanding of who he was. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 26, 24, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Hebrews 10, 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded an un as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? I want to add something. If you're afraid you have committed the unpardonable sin, I would suggest that you demonstrate that your heart is still soft towards the truth and the potential for genuine repentance is still there. But I would plead with you as a minister of the gospel, do not put it off. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him as your only hope of salvation and he will save you. Well, to wrap this up, back to Mark 3. Family said, I he's deranged. Scribes and Pharisees, I he's demonic. But Jesus says that he's deity. Let me explain this, beginning in verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is a curious scenario, curious statement. And Jesus clearly loved his mother and his brothers and his sisters. He meant no disrespect. But what he is simply saying is this. His family is not determined by blood relationship, but by those who sit at his feet and who desire to know him and seek to do his will because he is God, he is Lord. Only those who are related to him through saving faith are a part of his family. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And the will of God begins with the testimony of the Father. And what did the father say in Matthew 17, verse 5? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In John 8, verse 31, if you continue in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly disciples of mine. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so, dear friends, here Jesus asserts his deity. And those who are a part of his family are those who love him, and who want to serve him as Lord. And he said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Well, dear friends, what have you done with Jesus? Was he deranged? Was he demonic? Or was he God, very God? 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord, kurios in the original language. He is master. He is sovereign. He is the one with ultimate authority. It's a title of majesty and sovereignty. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we know that God the Father exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name. He said it was the name which is above every name. And what is the name that is above every name? It is Yahweh. It is ultimately who Jesus is. And in honor of that name, every knee is going to bow. It's interesting, the context of that particular text, Paul's writing to the very proud citizens of Philippi, a great Roman city, where everybody said, Caesar is Lord. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord. That's the point. And when Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, God says, and there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Then in verses 22 through 24, he invites sinners to repentance. He says this, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Jesus is Lord. Dear friend, you will one day bow the knee to Jesus and you will confess him as Lord. But you will either do that in triumph or in tragedy. You will either, either do that in unmitigated joy or unimaginable horror. You will be, bow before him either as your savior and your king, or as your judge and executioner. And may it never be said in this life or the life to come that you were not warned, because today you have, begin, you have been given the gospel, and you have heard that indeed Jesus is Lord. Won't you trust him today and serve him and worship him? and long for his return, as we all do, right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the eternal truths of your word. May they bear much fruit in each of our hearts. And for those that do not know what it is to truly bow before Christ and embrace him as their only hope of salvation, I would plead with you, to overwhelm them with such conviction that today will be the day that they bow in repentant faith and experience the miracle of the new birth. We commit that to you for the glory of Christ in whose name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.